0: Well, this morning, I want to talk to you uh, about a game that people play, and it's actually a game that we all play, and you've probably played it numerous times just this last week. You might have even played it this morning, and actually, chances are, in your lifetime, you have played this game more times than you can count, and I'm not talking about a card game, I'm not talking about a board game, I'm not talking about an arcade game or a social networking game, instead I'm talking about what I'm going to call the what-if game. The what if game. And it's a game that we all play way too much of the time. It's a game that we often play uh, with our minds, in in our hearts, as we look at our lives and we say, but what? What if? What if? And then we complete that phrase with, with something that we believe might just improve our situation. And I think you all know the game that I'm talking about, right? The what if game. Now, now, some of you, I think you play that game when, when you leave your office and you're on your way out to your car. And as you're walking out to your car and you're dreading that afternoon, that evening's commute, you think to yourself, but what if things aren't that bad today? <laughs> but, but what would that take? I mean, Bellevue magically goes away. You know, all of a sudden there's extra five lanes on 167. But still, those things aren't happening, but you still think to yourself, but what if? You know, what if a bunch of people left early today? Or what if a bunch of people are staying late today? Or what if nobody catches me using the HOV lanes today? Or what if I didn't have to do this stupid commute every day and work was right just around the corner? We play the what if game. And we don't just play it as commuters going back and forth from our jobs we also play it all the time as employees on our jobs. We think to ourselves, well, what if I had a better desk or a better office chair, more lumbar support? What if I had a better office or a better 401k or, or better benefits or a better paycheck or a better boss? What, what if I had a better job altogether? So we sit around and we, we daydream about those things. We imagine how, the, how those glorious changes would, would vastly improve our, our situation, our mood, our, our outlook on life. We like to play the what-if game. And, and if you're a student here this morning, uh, and you're not working a job yet, you still play the what-if game too. <laughs> this is not an adults-only game. You students play it when you think to yourself, what if I didn't have all this homework to do tonight? Or or what if this professor, this teacher, could actually give a lecture that was, I don't know, interesting? Or what if the people in my class weren't so distracting or so boring or so foolish or or so self-absorbed? We all, we all play the what-if game. We play it on our jobs, we play it at school, and often we even play it as a family. Let me just say, uh, this is far from the best family game. This is not ideal family game night. Spouses play this game with each other. We think, well, what if my husband was like him? Or what if my wife was like her? What if they were more sensitive? Or they were a better provider? Or more intellectually stimulating? Or or just more passionate? In our relationships, we play this what-if game. And it's not just in our marriage relationships. It shows up in our parenting relationships as well. Parents think, well, what if my kids were just more studious or, or more athletic or, or more assertive or more well behaved? And kids, kids think similar things about their parents. What if my dad would just stop lecturing me all the time and just chill out? Right, Anna? <laughs> but here's the thing we play it all the time, and we even play it with our Christianity. We even play it with our Christianity. We, we like to think what ifs about our church. What if our church was bigger? What if our church had more programs? What if, what if there were more people serving? More people getting saved? More missionaries sent out? More people raised up for, mission, for, for ministry? What if? And, and then, as Christians, we play it with our, our Christian calling in this culture. We, we think, well, what if this culture wasn't so antagonistic to Christ? What, what if it wasn't so hard at times to be a Christian here in America? What if people were more open to talking about the gospel? More eager to hear the good news? What if it all, the the serving, the sharing, the loving, forgiving, what if it wasn't so hard? We all play the what-if game, and we play it all the time, all the time. However, this morning, we're going to meet the master at this game, the master at the what-if game. If there was a a what-if tournament of champions, this guy would be at the top of the leaderboard. If there was a what-if hall of fame, this guy wouldn't just have a plaque on the wall. He'd have an entire wing dedicated to him. And I call him the master at this game because, as we'll see this morning, he's so much better at it than we are. Now, now by that, I don't simply mean that he has a better mind for it, a better imagination for it than we do. He he probably does. But that's not the key to what makes him so good at this game. You see, what makes him the master of this what-if game is that this guy actually had the ability... To carry it all out. To carry out every what-if thought that passed across his mind. We think the what-if thoughts, he actually did them. He actually did them. He he took all of our our what-ifs and he actually lived them out in the real world. Whatever his heart desired, he had the means, the ability, and the time to actually pursue it. And we meet this master of the what-if game in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So if you haven't done so already, take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes and chapter 2. And do uh, we have any ushers in here this morning? If, we, if you need a Bible, we got some Bibles in the back. You can slip your hand up and one of our ushers will bring them over. I want everybody to be able to, to follow along in the text. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And as you're turning there to Ecclesiastes chapter 2... Let me just remind you that in chapter 1, we met the spokesman of this book. And uh, we discovered that this spokesman was a man of great resources. Now, you see the opening verse of chapter 1, and then later on in verse 12 of that same chapter, we find out that this spokesman, he goes by the Hebrew title, Koaleth. Uh, and that title can be translated into English as the gatherer, or the assembler, or the teacher. But, but this spokesman's handle, Koaleth, is best understood the way the ESV brings it across here, as the preacher. The preacher he's one who who gathers an assembly and then speaks to them. He is the preacher. And this preacher is here in this book to give us us a sermon. Actually, a sermon series on life in this world. And, And he wants to talk to us about life as he puts it under the sun. Life under the sun and what gain, what meaning we can actually find in it. But but this preacher who is exploring this theme, he's not some random guy off the streets. Uh, As we discovered in our time so far in this book, this preacher is none other than King Solomon himself. He is the actual historical king of of great wisdom, of great resources and great ability, King Solomon. And last Sunday, we saw that Solomon, as this coeleth, this preacher, wants to tell us what he found as he sought to use all of his resources and all of his power and all of his wisdom to understand the meaning of life. He actually set out to understand all that is done under the sun. What's this life all about? And he, he threw himself, we talked about this last week, he threw him, his entire self at that question. And, and his underlying goal in that pursuit was to understand if we can find any satisfaction, if we can find any meaning in all the things that we're pursuing, all the things that we're chasing... In this life, under the sun. And so now, as we open chapter 2, Solomon is going to tell us more about his pursuit. Look at verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. Here, here we're seeing this preacher at the start of his own what-if game. And he starts it where we all start it, in the heart. Now, if you remember, I talked to you last week uh, about how many times we're going to see Solomon, this preacher, talk in this book about his heart. Some, some 40 times in this book, he's going to use this kind of language. My heart, in my heart, I said to my heart. Some 40 times in this book. And, and what you need to understand is it's internal language. So... It's Solomon internalizing things. He's running things through his intellect, through his affections, and then engaging his will. And and that's what the Hebrews meant when they talked about the heart. The heart wasn't just the, the seat of emotions. The way we think of the heart, you know, it's where your feelings are at. For the Hebrews, it wasn't just the seat of the emotions. It was actually the seat of the true self. So all of your intellect, all of your affections and your will was all seated in and flowed out of the heart. And so here, this preacher is telling us that in his heart talk, in his internal monologue, he set out to test his heart, to test his true self. And he's going to test it with a a rather different approach. Here, Solomon, this man of great wisdom. He's going to throw off the the restraints of that wisdom. He's going to throw off the, the limitations and the guidelines of much of his wisdom, and he's going to let his heart just freely pursue pleasure. What if we just let our hearts go after pleasure? What if we just let our hearts go after pleasure? That's his, his what-if question. However, <clears throat> it's important as we, as we look at the start of his what-if game, that we realize that there's this word that is translated as pleasure here in verse 1, It's not necessarily a negative term. Maybe you hear it that way, but it's not necessarily a negative term. Now, it can be a negative term, but it can also be a very positive one. And actually, we're going to see it used in very positive ways later on in this book of Ecclesiastes. But the the term itself, it just means pleasure. It means joy. It means jubilation. It speaks of enjoyment. It speaks of enjoying life. Enjoying life. And, and that's the test that this koalith is going to give his heart. Go enjoy yourself. Heart, go enjoy yourself. But, but as he does this, as he throws off his restraints, and he, he, he just lets his heart run after pleasure, here's the thing, you need to understand this. He hasn't necessarily shown wisdom the door. He hasn't kicked out wisdom altogether. He's still going to use his wisdom in this test. It will still be there at first to... To, to restrain some of his worst impulses. But maybe more important for, for what he tells us here. He's going to use his wisdom to then assess what he finds in this test. He's going to use it to evaluate what he learns through this process. So, so his wisdom is still present with him. So as he tests his heart with pleasure, as he lets it just run and enjoy itself. He's going to then use his wisdom to evaluate what he finds. And I point this out because it's important for us to understand that this preacher and his pleasure pursuit its a little different than your typical prodigal. Okay? We're all familiar with the prodigal son. He took all of his inheritance and he just used it to fuel whatever his heart desired. But I want you to understand, this preacher's pr- approach is a little different than that. As commentator Zach Eswine points out, <clears throat> The prodigal gorges on pleasure. Because he believes that this is his right. He sells what belongs to him in order to get women or drink or friends for happiness. The preacher, in contrast, seems to doubt whether this interior hole in his life, this search for meaning, can find anything to fill it. So by wisdom he tests his theory and weathers the truth of it. The prodigal consumes what is under the sun, but the preacher contends with it. So so one, this prodigal, is simply bent on on pleasure as a right. But the other, this preacher in Ecclesiastes, is wondering about pleasure as a means to a deeper goal. Is pursuing pleasure, pursuing things like, like amusements and accomplishments and sensuality... Are those things the key to finding meaning and purpose, finding some kind of gain in this life under the sun? He is testing pleasure as a means of fulfillment. And when you understand that, you realize that, that his pursuit here is very relevant in light of our modern age. Right? A lot of people trying to find pleasure as a means to fulfillment. Amen? Amen? So his search is is very relevant, his pursuit is very relevant to life in our modern age. And it's also relevant to the thinking in our own hearts, right? Because we do the same thing, right? We try to go pleasure as a means of fulfillment. So what he's going to do is he's going to chase all the things that we chase every day. And he's going to see what happens if we actually answer our what-if questions with real, tangible results. What if we get everything, every pleasure, every enjoyment that our hearts actually desire? Does that change life? Does that change life? Does that give life meaning? Does that transform the way that things are under the sun? That's his pursuit, that's his test. So now, let's talk about the, the first test in his what-if game. What if you were endlessly amused? What if you were endlessly amused? We, especially we Americans, we like our amusement, right? We even have amusement parks dedicated to that very thing. So we take family vacations to them. We spend thousands of dollars at them, all to be amused. We love to be amused. We love our movies. We love our sporting events. We love a good novel, good play. And we especially love a good joke. We love to be amused with humor. And actually, that's the first thing here that Coleth points out in his pursuit of pleasure. In verse 2, he talks about chasing the punchline. He mentions both laughter and pleasure. And pleasure is speaking of amusing joy or, or revelry. And again, we enjoy those things. We all love to laugh. Amen? We enjoy laughing. And laughter is actually a blessing. As one author puts it, I thought this was so good. Laughter gives expression to the language of joy. Laughter gives expression to the language of joy. Wordless, he says, it utters the glad sounds of mirth with God, our world, and each other. It's the language of joy. And and you know this, you know this, right? A a good joke can lighten the heart. A a moment of laughter can, can deepen a friendship. A healthy chuckle is often an appropriate vehicle for our joy in the moment. But, but, that doesn't mean that those who actually laugh out loud are always getting it right. There are times when humor can go really, really wrong. And this is also part of what Coaleth learned in his quest. As he gave his heart to humor and to the pleasure that it gives, he he found that there was actually something pretty unfunny about it. Here, look at the text, he tells us in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. But, but by that, please, please understand, he, he's not pointing out that he thinks it's crazy, that he thinks it's insane, that he thinks it's mentally unsound. Instead, he's using this term mad or madness in a moral sense. And what he's saying here is, he's saying that he found a dark side in laughter. And if we think about it, we're all familiar with, with the dark side in humor. As one commentator points out, We are prone to squeeze the juices out of laughter's rind in order to attempt, listen, in order to attempt escape, excuse our sin, or promote folly. The escapist, he writes, is always laughing, joking, and giggling. Trying to urge others to smile even when the time for laughter has clocked out and the time to mourn has arrived. They're an escapist. They try to escape through laughter. He continues... Laughter can also excuse our mistreatment of a family member or neighbor. Instead of saying that we are sorry and we need to grow for something we've done, we blame shift and say, lighten up, I was only kidding. I was only joking. It's an excuse for our mistreatment of somebody else. And then he adds, laughter can also be a tool for folly. We make jokes about things that ought to shame us. We make jokes about things that ought to shame us. And we see this all the time, don't we? We see this all the time in our culture, sometimes in our families, maybe even in our own conversations. This dark side of humor. And Koheleth saw this, and it led him to conclude that if you are chasing, if you are searching the meaning for life, you you won't find it chasing a punchline. If you're searching for the meaning of life, you won't find it chasing a punchline. Again, look at verse 2. He says, of pleasure, of this revelry through humor, what does he say? What use? What use is it? So, so when it comes to really finding gain in life, will it actually be found through humor? Humor is helpful. Don't misunderstand what we're getting at here. Humor is helpful, but can it ultimately deal with the trials and the realities of life under the sun? Over in the book of Proverbs, this same Solomon, he muses in Proverbs 14, 13, listen, Proverbs 14, 13, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. The end of joy may be grief. And to see the truth of that proverb, we we need to look no further than maybe the life of of maybe the, the greatest comedian of our generation, Robin Williams, right? I mean, that man made millions of people laugh. Uh, His comedic timing, uh, his ability to improvise, um, his mastery of voices and and impressions. I mean, you just look at him. He was a comedic force. But even though he had this ability, this ability to make the entire world laugh, it still didn't give him the the gain, the, the sense of meaning for which we all long. So you know this. August 11th, 2014. That amazing comedian took his own life. And, and sadly, Koalath points out here why. You see, the gain, the meaning and purpose for which we long, it simply isn't found in the pleasure of humor. A joke can't save the world. A joke can't save the world. Yes, humor is a gift, but it's not ultimately the source of gain. So then this preacher tells us here that he went after other amusements. He says that he began looking down a bottle. We see this in verse 3. I search with my heart, verse 3, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now here's the thing. Some of you might be tempted to read this and think that Solomon's saying he went off and he became a drunk. You know, a sot, some lush That's not what he's saying here. Instead, what he's most likely talking about is embracing the gift of wine as part of celebration. And in the Bible, wine is presented that way. Wine is presented as a gift, as a gift that is part of celebration. In Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, we read this. You, speaking of God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Wine to gladden the heart of man. So so wine is a gift from God to gladden the heart. It's part of celebration. And and that point is actually going to be something repeated later on in this book of Ecclesiastes. When we get to chapter 10, we're going to read Wine Gladden's Life. So, It's a gift from God that is part of healthy, normal celebration. It's actually something to be enjoyed, but done so responsibly. And I say that because the Bible also speaks about the danger of wine. It speaks against drunkenness and what often accompanies those who embrace too much wine. Over in Proverbs 23, we read this. Listen, who has woe? who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine. Those who tarry long over wine. However, here, I don't think what Solomon is saying is that he gave himself to that kind of pursuit, to drunkenness and to debauchery. And I say that because, again, look at the text. He makes this clarifying comment. My heart's still guiding me with what? What does it say? With wisdom. Yeah, three people are still with me this morning. That's good. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. So what he's saying here is he wasn't out of his mind drunk. Instead, I think what he is describing here is simply pursuing life like it's one nonstop party. That's why he adds here, and how to lay hold of folly. You see, he started chasing, what if every day could just be about enjoyment? What if every day could just be about celebration? What if every day could just be about revelry? What, what if we didn't need to take anything seriously and life could just be all for our amusement? What if life was just like one long vacation, one long birthday party, one long anniversary celebration? What if life was like, life was like that? No job, no bills. No people demanding your time. Just one long stay at an all-inclusive resort. What if life was like that? Could we find true and lasting good in that? Would that make our our brief life have some meaning? That's what he's asking here. Would we find true gain in that? So, So what if? What what if we could make everyone laugh, and life, life was simply about nonstop amusement? What if? Well, that's the first pursuit, the first test that this koala shares with us. But then before he, he fully answers that first question, this pre- preacher quickly, quickly pivots, and he raises another what if. So along, along, if, along with what if we were endlessly amused, he raises, what if you were impressively accomplished? What if you were impressively accomplished? And this guy, he was. I mean, just look what he tells us here in the text, starting in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He writes, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. So you see, this guy, he was at the top of the Fortune 500 list. He was at the top. His resume, his portfolio were robust. He had done, he had accumulated it all. Here he starts off by telling us that he made great works. So he was constantly building bigger and better. Now, you know this. In our modern American culture, we are infatuated with home improvement. We're infatuated with it. We can't get enough. We can't get enough. Not only do we have entire stores devoted to it, like, like Lowe's and Home Depot, we just love watching other people do it, right? So, so we watch our HGTV. We, we binge on shows like Fixer Upper and Property Brothers. We just love watching it. We love, we love watching what they can do. We love watching how they can fix and they can improve things. We, we get entertained by that. And we also, <laughs> we're also always playing the what if game when we're watching those shows, aren't we? We're always playing the what if game. Oh, look at that. What if my house looked like that? What, what, if, we, what if we could do our kitchen that way? Or, or our bathroom that way? Or What if we could sell this place and get something even better like, like that? But here's the thing. Solomon was way better at home improvement than you or the property brothers or even Joe, Chip and Joanna Gaines. He could play this home improvement what if game better than any of us because he could actually make it all happen. He can make it all happen. Now, in this text here, he doesn't give us all the, the details, but that's okay. The rest of the Bible does. And it tells us that Solomon actually spent 13 years, 13 years... Building a home for himself. He spent seven building the temple, 13 building a home for himself. And his home was actually several homes all connected together in this royal palace. And just one of those buildings in that palace, a place called the House of the Forest Lebanon, it might have been around 33,000 square feet. Just one of the buildings, 33,000 square feet, just one of the places in his home. And it was all ornately decorated best stone, best timber, best craftsman working on. And attached to those homes, that palace, Solomon also made for himself a virtual Eden. Notice in verse 5, look at the text here. Notice in verse 5, he tells us, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself Pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Notice the repetition here. I made for myself. So this wasn't some public parks program that Solomon launched. This was all simply for his own personal delight. This was his own place just to chill. Relax. This was his own place. This had taken all the, the sights and the smells. His own place just to enjoy life. Now, I watch those home improvement shows too, just like you do. And one of my personal what-ifs is the really luxurious, spa-like bathrooms on those shows. Ready for a confession this morning? I lust after the showers in those bathrooms. Those large, multi-head, beautifully tiled, spa-like showers. Now, last week, again, I keep each week revealing probably too much information for you guys. But last week, I told you I like to schedule my showers. Well, if I had one of those showers, it would just blow up my schedule. It would just blow it up. Just, just, I would just love just to hang out and relax in that shower. To me, that would be like my own personal Eden. You know, I'm just naked and enjoying life there in the shower. But here's the thing. This Koaleth, this he lived an actual life that makes my fantasy look like a kid in the front yard playing with a garden hose. I mean, his reality, you need to understand this, his reality trumped our fantasies. He had a home we'd all get lost in. Can I please have a map, Solomon, because I don't know where the bathroom is. We'd all get lost in his place. He had a backyard that was like the most beautiful golf course mixed with the greatest botanical garden combined with the most glorious of orchards. And it was all there, all by his own ingenuity and for his own personal enjoyment. He wasn't living jealous of his neighbors. Instead, they were all jealous of him. They were all jealous of him. And in order to keep up with his uh, lifestyle of the rich and famous, in order to keep that fully fueled, uh, he he then had revenue upon revenue. He talks here in verse 4 about the vineyards that he planted. And not only were those vineyards providing great wine for his revelry, uh, each vineyard, according to Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 11, each vineyard brought in a 1,000 pieces of silver, each one. So, so Solomon's vineyards was producing the best wine. These vineyards were producing the best wine, and people were willing to pay for it. Each one, 1,000 pieces of silver. And, and not only had he created the, this vineyard stream of revenue, But we see here in the text that he also made an industry out of of people. Here in verse 7, we see this, this shameful truth. That some of his wealth, some of his accomplishment was fueled by slavery. He bought slaves. He was a slave owner. And those slaves gave birth to children who he then also made slaves. And so he became wealthy, not just financially, but, but in people who were focused simply on serving his needs. I think that, that Pastor Zach Eswine gives some helpful and clarifying comments on this. Listen to what he writes. He says, though this kind of slavery mentioned here differs in kind from slavery in America's history, it wasn't as brutal, nor was it racially driven. Listen, the principle remains inhumanly the same. One person is owned by another like property. He continues, throughout history, human beings have shown a desire to own others, to boss them, and to have the power to dictate to others the service we want for ourselves. (coughs) To have the power to dictate to others the service we want for ourselves. And that that perverse, selfish little desire is at the heart of what drives slavery. Slavery. So the heart of what drives slavery, what if people just did what I wanted? What if people just did what I wanted? What if they all just listened to me? What if everyone just served me? What if my will was law and no one could challenge me? You see, we, we all rightly cringe at the wickedness of slavery. But here's the thing. We've also all probably entertained that same selfish seed thought in our hearts what if everyone just did what I wanted them to do? And here's the thing, though. This call didn't just entertain that thought. He actually lived it out. He had a palace full of people at his beck and call. He was the, the center of a world bent on serving him. And he had the wealth to support it all. And we see here in the text, this man was a, a titan of industry. Now, in that day and age, industry wasn't about factories and the massive production of product. Instead, industry was all centered, as he mentions here in the last half of verse 7, it was all centered in herds and flocks. Herds and flocks, that's where textiles came from, that's where the food supply came from, that's where livelihood came from. So the guy with the biggest herds and the biggest flocks was the guy with the biggest bankroll. And Solomon here says he had more than anybody. Again, we don't get all the details here in the text, but the Bible does fill in the rest of the details Over in 1 Kings 4, listen to this. Over in 1 Kings 4, we read about how Solomon's household was fed for just one day. This was what it took just one day for his household to feed his household. Listen. One day, 10 fattened oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle. If if you've ever had cattle and you've slaughtered them and you know how much meat, that's a lot of meat, right? So 10 fattened oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep. Besides deer, gazelle, roebucks, and fattened fowl. So you think about it, that's, a, that's one day. One day. That's a staggering amount of food. And it all came from his flocks and his herds. Also in that same chapter in 1 Kings 4, we read that Solomon had, listen to this, 40,000 stalls of horses. 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horses. I mean, when you think about it, 40,000. That's just crazy numbers. But it was all his. And he had more coming in every day. It tells us here in verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And as he tells us, he's actually talking about his role as the tax man. You see, as the king, everybody had to pay him. And so as commentator Philip Ryken explains, some of his treasure came from the taxes on his own people. Some of it came from the tribute of foreign powers, but it all came from someone else. And it was all coming in all the time. Solomon was one of the the greatest rulers in the ancient world. And the ancient world stood in awe of his accomplishments. Uh, We find a powerful picture of this over in 1 Kings chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. Let me just tell you about it. There we read of the, the visit of the queen of Sheba. And she came to visit Solomon because she'd heard how amazing Solomon's palace and how amazing he was and his whole household and everything. So she'd heard how amazing, but she just wanted to witness for herself because she just didn't believe it. And this is what happened when she came to visit. This is from 1 Kings 10, uh, verses 4 and 5. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, that palace, The food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants and their clothing and his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. When she saw all of it, there was no more breath in her. That's what it says. She was breathless. When she saw the greatness of Solomon, this great queen of the ancient world, she ran out of breath. She couldn't even open it. She couldn't say anything. She was speechless. as she took it all in. So this this preacher that's speaking to us, he had done it all. He was fully accomplished. He, he had taken up our, our what-if games about our jobs, and about our homes, and about our bank accounts. And, and he pushed them beyond even our wildest fantasies. And, and then he tells us that he also embraced our most sensual fantasies and pushed those to the limits too. And that leads me to my third what if this morning. What if you were overwhelmed sensually? What if you could be overwhelmed sensually? I mean, mean, this is the world that Solomon lived in every day. Whatever his senses desired, he could enjoy. And and not just exotic foods, not just the the sights and the smells out there in his Eden-like garden. But he could also enjoy the the sensual pleasures of beautiful music and of unlimited sexual gratification. And that's what he points out here in the end of verse 8. Look at the text, the end of verse 8. He tells us, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now, the first thing he mentions there when he says, talks about a singers, uh, we might be tempted just to read right past that. Oh, yeah, you got singers. That's nice. Uh, but, but we see that comment as minor because we don't live in the ancient world. We, we live in the musically luxurious 21st century we we walk around with thousands of songs in our pockets, right? And we have concert-like sound in our car, in our home, and, and on our ears when we go to the gym. So we live in the musically luxurious 21st century. But that's not the way that people rolled in the ancient world. As one commentator points out, music was a rare pleasure in those days. Most people didn't have that exposure like we do music. Music was a rare pleasure, but the man who wrote Ecclesiastes could afford to bring it into his own home, engaging entire choirs to sing just for his pleasure. Anything that his ears desired, he could have at the snap of his fingers. He, he was rolling in a, a limitless iPod of live in the flesh human voices. But that wasn't the only thing that was in the flesh in Solomon's home. He had so many women in the flesh that Hugh Hefner would have been jealous of Solomon. You see here in the text, he talks about his many concubines. And, and although the, this word that's used here in the Hebrew that's translated as concubines, it's a rare word. It is not, as the King James Version or the New King James Version tries to translate it, a reference to musical instruments. If you have a New King James Version and it doesn't say anything about concubines, it just says musical instruments. That's not a proper translation. Instead, the Hebrew word that's used here is a reference to the harem of King Solomon. And again, we're not given the details here, but 1 Kings 11 records for us the, uh, the shocking figures. It tells us, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. He had, listen to this. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. So a thousand sexual partners to choose from whenever he desired. He had a a fantasy land for his sexual desires. And here's the thing you need to understand. These were not just any women off the street. These were chosen women living in luxury. These were princesses and queens. These were the best and the brightest. These were courtesans and concubines, all beautifully adorned and trained in sensual delights. Solomon had endless sexual variety. He had women from all over the ancient world. He had sensuality and sexual delights in abundance. He had everything in abundance. Everything in abundance. So, what if you had it all? What if you had it all? What if you had life without limits? I mean, just look at what he tells us here in the text. Look at verses 9 and 10. He tells us, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And what? look at this. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from, what does it say? What does this say? I kept my heart from no pleasure. So he played the what if game like no one has ever played it. All of life's amusements. All of life's accomplishments. All of life's sensual delights. Solomon knew them all in abundance everything you might have ever thought what if Solomon could say been there done that so what did he discover what did he discover what what did he learn from testing his heart with limitless pleasure and what would he tell our hearts as they desire to run after just some of the things I just want some of the things That he enjoyed. What would he tell our hearts? Well here in the text he gives us what I'll call the long and the short of it. The long and the short of the what if game. And the short of it. The short answer is. That the pleasure that we desire. It lasts for a moment. And then it's gone. It lasts for a moment. And then it's gone. Koalith tells us in the remainder of verse 10. Look at it again. Look at verse 10 again. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure, look it, in all my toil. And this was my reward for our, all my toil. So, so there was pleasure, there was joy in the moment. And, and beloved, that's the way it is with so many things in this world. It, it's like Christmas morning, right? There's all this anticipation, there's joy in the moment. And then boom, within hours, what all the toys are broken <laughs> And we're wondering, what's next? What's next? And that's the point he makes for us here in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, I wouldn't go back and change a thing. What does he say? Behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here, if you've been with us through this study, you see that this preacher is hitting on his repeating theme again. He tells us it's all just grasping smoke. As we've talked about in the study, behind that word that's translated in verse 11 as vanity, is the Hebrew word hevel. And it's a word that means smoke or mist. And that's what Solomon found. As he chased after pleasure, after humor, after a party lifestyle, and then accomplishments and sensual delights, as he tried to grab a hold of each one and and hold on to the gain in it, he found it all just slipping through his fingers. After all of his extravagant what-if pursuits, he found himself actually holding nothing. Nothing. There was nothing to be gained. Under the sun. So that's the short of it. That's the short answer in this what if game. It's nice for a moment. But you won't find the gain. You won't find the satisfaction. You won't find the quote unquote life improvement. That you're actually looking for. And you need to hear this brothers and sisters. Because we will read Solomon's words. And we go I don't we really believe that. And you know how I know we respond that way. Because we still keep chasing the same stuff. The what if game will disappoint you every time. Every time. That's the short of it. Now, let me give you the long of it. And and what I mean by that is, this is the long term answer. And and in order to help you understand this answer, I want to share with you two quick, very illuminating uh, quotes from some two pretty famous guys. And the first one comes from hated Seahawk rival Tom Brady. Boo, Tom Brady. This comes from Tom Brady, though. And this was after after he won his third Super Bowl. uh, The New England Patriots quarterback, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And listen to what he said in that interview. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this is, this, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And then when the interviewer asked him, well, then, you know, if that's not it, what is the answer? Brady could only say, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. It's my first quote. My first quote. Here's my second. And this comes from the late, great C.S. Lewis. He writes, Many people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or we first think of some foreign country. Or we first take up some subject that excites us. our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There, there was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing. Which just fades away in the reality. And that's something that we grasp at. But can't find in all of the pleasures of this world. Is the something, or better said, the someone that we were created to enjoy. We were created to glorify and enjoy God. That's why we're here, brothers and sisters. That's why we're made. That's where our hearts find true rest and real delight. And all of the pleasures of this world, they're just echoes, they're just shadows. Of the real pleasure and true delight found in knowing and being known by our God. But like godless Esau, we've traded our birthright for a bowl of porridge. Like the Lord says through his prophet Jeremiah, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, our what-ifs have turned our hearts from true joy himself. And we run after these empty idols that will only leave us thirsting for more. Praise God. In his grace, in his loving kindness, in his mercy, he brings us back. Amen? Praise God, he brings us back. He shows us through, through gracious revelations like this one, the emptiness of our chasing. And then he calls us through the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ to find our true joy in him. And in him we learn. We learn what true joy is. And then he teaches us, and this is beautiful, and we'll talk about this more as we go through Ecclesiastes. He teaches us, he actually frees us how to then find the pleasure in the things that he gives, like a good joke, like a good celebration, like like a job well done, a song well sung, or, or the marriage bed enjoyed. God graciously gives us all of those wonderful gifts to be enjoyed. But in order to truly enjoy them as we should, we need to stop running to them for gain. And run to Him instead. So, let's stop running after other things and just enjoy Him. Amen? Let's enjoy Him. Let's confess together our empty chasing and then turn our hearts to the one that we were made for. Our Creator and our Redeemer. You see, even gorged on the pleasures of this world, even gorged on the pleasures of this world, we won't find satisfaction for our soul apart from life with God. So Danny, would you come and lead us now in a time of worship and response?